As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. I have the opportunity today to be sitting across from Ed Rigaud, chairman and owner of Anovo Premier, chairman and CEO of Legacy Acquisition Corp., previous board member of Federal Reserve Bank in Cleveland and local board of Fifth Third Bank. I've had the opportunity to get to know Ed more intimately through his board leadership at the Metropolitan Club and his work throughout our great community. Um, Ed, thank you so much for being a part of today's episode. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Mike. I'm very excited to really dive in today on a conversation that you and I are having the opportunity to lead in May on inclusive capitalism that we're hosting with the Gehring Center. And that event is on May 16th. And on inclusive capitalism, and it came, the idea of hosting this event came from a great event you hosted last year at Great American Ballpark to really help our community start understanding what being inclusive looks like as it relates to capitalism. So I'd love to spend some time today to really talk about why you're putting so much personal energy into this conversation. Why is it important to you? What are you trying to change in the world around us? And what's really motivating Ed Rigaud at this time in your career? Mike, it's really about freedom. And so part of my background is, aside from working many years with Procter & Gamble in the corporate world, I spent nine years at the Freedom Center from its very beginning until it opened the doors in 2005. Mm-hmm. And I learned that we really have to work harder to realize freedom in its ultimate possibility for everyone. And so, you know, inclusion's part of that. Economic empowerment is part of that. A whole notion of how are we going to climb the ladder of freedom? How can we help all people climb the ladder of freedom. Hmm. And so as I look at where we are today in this country and uh, around the world, particularly in the U.S., though, we've got this economic gap. We've got this tremendous difference between the top folks who are wealthy and the folks who are poor and also kind of the loss of that middle-class incentive of climbing the ladder Mm. all the way to empowerment and actualization. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there are statistics that you can look at, but they're simply indicators of a deeper-rooted problem. When you see that, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the people own 23 percent of the wealth, And the one-tenth of one percent, think about it, have 23 percent of all the wealth. And the bottom 90 percent of people have the same amount. They have 22 percent. 
So that disparity says something is not working. You know, I say capitalism is not working, but not because intrinsically capitalism is flawed. It's because we haven't implemented capitalism in a way that can help us to achieve freedom and the pursuit of happiness Mm -hmm. and prosperity. Mm -hmm. Ed, with your organizations, I mean, you have spent time at Procter & Gamble. You were a leader there, an executive there, started your career there, as I understand it, and have kind of took over ranks and really broke your own barriers in many cases. Procter of many of the individuals that even you worked with, Dr. Janet Reed is on our board and uh, at Centennial and has been a podcast guest and attributes to yourself and to John Pepper and to so many leaders that, I mean, it's like, wow, right here in Cincinnati, we have world leaders who have looked at inclusion in a different way than many of the rest of the world. As you look at opportunities and ceilings that you hit in your career, how did you break through those yourself personally? That's a great question. You know, I started in New Orleans in a relatively poor family in the seventh ward of New Orleans during Jim Crow. So, you know, I experienced all kinds of hurdles and roadblocks in my life, but for some reason was always focused on climbing. And I didn't let those hurdles and roadblocks get in the way, even to the point where, you know, I was denied access to my state university, LSU. In 1961, as one of the top students in my high school, I applied to LSU School of Architecture and was turned down because of the color of my skin. So your audience may not know I'm African-American, mixed race, But, you know, I kept driving, and now I think I understand better. Now that I'm 75 years old, I have now wisdom. You have to be old to be wise. (laughs) (laughs) And what I've seen is if you have a vision and you pursue that vision every day, if you put flesh on it every day, so it's reality for you, you'll achieve it. And if you let the hurdles be on the side, you're aware of them, but you're not focused on the hurdles. You're focused on your vision. And so all your energy, all your mental and physical energy goes toward achieving that vision. And that's the way I operate in my life. Wow. That's really profound. So when you came up against those hurdles, your mind didn't go to this is happening to me because it was how will I jump over those and achieve what I'm ultimately set out to be. That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yeah. In a world where there is disconnect and sometimes very disheartening environment, and the good thing is, again, I, I'm fortunate and blessed to be here in the greater Cincinnati area where we have world leaders like yourself that are trying to do life different. What we say here at the Talent Magnet Institute is how do we bring out the best in all people? And you mentioned it earlier. It's actually one of our values inside of the Talent Magnet Institute, bringing out the best in all people capitalized. How have you 
been able to or how have you experienced inspiring others to kind of take their own blinders off in this conversation? Because it's one of those tough discussions around, well, am I supposed to feel bad about what I've achieved or who I've achieved? I mean, we tend to go to, I think many leaders go to that side versus looking at it that how can they provide other opportunities for their employees, for their community? Who are they surrounding themselves with at the dinner table? Who are they surrounding themselves with at the card table, their networking groups, their social groups. I was talking to Dr. Chantel Thomas on this topic recently, and Dr. Janet Reed brought it up as well, of the discussion of who do we put around the table? You know, a good way to figure out if your family is being inclusive is what do your kids' friends look like? And then bring that out to what is your get together look like? What about the boards that you're on? And what about the environments that you're in? And I know this is a big focal area for you of giving others an opportunity that they may not have ever had. So can you share a couple of examples where you've done that and the hard work and grit that it took to make that happen? Sure. Yeah. The one that comes to mind first is I call it HOFF, H-O-F-F. And that stands for honesty, openness, fairness, and fun. And the way Hoff came to me was at Procter & Gamble, I took over a division as the director of the division. And the person I was replacing was a bit of an autocratic style manager who had instilled a lot of fear in the organization. And you don't find that often at Procter & Gamble, I'll tell you that. (laughs) But in this case, this fellow, he was European and really didn't like the American culture a whole lot. And so, you know, he was beating up a lot of people. So the first thing I did was interview every person in that 260-odd division. Hmm. And I gave them each 45 minutes with me one-on-one to find out what their aspirations were, what their feelings were. And then I preached Hoff. I let them know that first and foremost for me is honesty and openness and fairness. And there was another F eventually called fun, but it was fulfillment. Mm. And I was able to build trust with Hoff. And I practice Hoff myself, and the culture of that organization became much more Proctor-like because those values are P&G values. So they were not foreign to P&G at all. You know, I think establishing that kind of trust and having empathy is something that's very important. It's the isms that are keeping us apart. You know, it's tribalism, Mm -hmm. it's classism, it's racism, it's sexism. And so to the extent that I like what you say about who do you sit down with, you sit down with people who have similar values but may have very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and may be in very different circumstances in their lives than you are. But you have empathy Mm -hmm. because of that. So we want to move, I think, much more on the scale of mistrust and 
love on that range. We want to move closer to love and empathy. The other thing is you need to know your own purpose in your life. And so I think what I've been able to do is find out what are the deep roots within me that I want to nurture and nourish. And I've found out that I'm a builder. I am uh, an innovator. And that's part of my purpose. So it also means I want to teach others how you innovate and how you build if they have an interest in that Mm -hmm. for themselves. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And it sounds like you have done this for others as well. As I was preparing for this interview, I reached out to a couple of individuals who I know that you worked with or have spent a lot of time with and their commentary, and this is a learning to all of us listening to this episode that we can have impact is the impact you've had on other people. Right, getting people to do those same things and getting people to love others despite differences and building empathy inside of an organization also enhances your culture, enhances your organizational performance, enhances your innovation pipeline. All of those things it seems like a leader like yourself has known for you know decades and for some reason we're – I'm sure these discussions have always been talked about, but I'm really thankful they're being brought to the forefront now and helping us all lead well. Another topic that has come up quite a bit around and love to get your perspective on this is I am a believer and we are here at the Talent Magnet Institute that we can make an impact. We don't need to wait for I wish someone else would or I wish we could that right now the current generation of leaders, no matter what age you are, you can have significant impact on the life that you live and the life that you influence around others. And it sounds like you've led that way, despite hoping one day someone else will, you've just been a doer to make things happen for the community. Is that an accurate depiction? (laughs) Yes, it is. And it keeps me occupied and busy And I don't have time to worry about trivial things. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Yeah, that's right. When you talk about the isms, Ed, are there particular discussions or dialogues that you've had in your past that you might be able to share, like where individuals are clearly uncomfortable talking about, you know, let's just use the example, sexism and racism, where you have found that just by leaning into that conversation and having the dialogue, it made all of us build more empathy for one another and view the world in a different way. I mean, I'm sure you've been in tough conversations regarding some of these isms. Yeah, absolutely. Both at P&G and also at the Freedom Center. And in both cases, there was a guru on this subject by the name of Dan Yankelovich. Dan had one of the largest survey companies, polling companies in the country for a long time. And believe it or not, he was the guy we brought in to help us do the consumer research that led to Pringles. Oh, wow. Uh, So Dan wrote a book, a little quick read, called The Magic of Dialogue. And it lays out very clearly the basis on which you can have the kind of dialogue that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. 
and how you have to put yourself on the same plane with the person who may be very, very different and how you have to respect what they say and what their feelings are and their opinions, even if you don't agree. And you have to establish, it's back to that empathy word, Mm -hmm. you have to establish empathy and respect for the other person to listen to a different point of view that's coming from a totally different background. And lo and behold, when you do that, that's the stuff that leads to innovation. Mm -hmm. If you don't do it, if you don't rub elbows with a person who comes from a totally different perspective, you're not going to come up with anything different. And it's that touching that causes sparks to fly that other person wouldn't have and you wouldn't have Mm -hmm. on your own. Mm -hmm. Have you, as we talk through the individuals who just have had that enlightening experience that, okay, I finally get it or, or have kind of fought back on this that, well, we really don't need to push and we don't need a room of people that just looks different than ourselves. We need to get something done and they kind of reserve themselves against the theory of being more inclusive. This is the hardest work you could ever undertake. Mm -hmm. And the larger the difference, the more difficult the work. Mm. But fruits that come out of it are incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's those are the experiences that are the best in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, when you've had breakthroughs result with that kind of dialogue. Mm. That's wonderful. As we look through fostering this, I know as we gear up for the Inclusive Capitalism event in May, May 16th with the Gearing Center, and for those listening, if the date has already passed, that I always share that podcasts are timeless, so they sit out in the world and people may listen. You know, if you listen to this after this date of May 16th, 2019, look in your community and see what is happening on this conversation and whether you get started some dinner chats or some roundtables on this topic or learn from some of our episodes on inclusive capitalism. Or if you're listening to this before May 16th, we ask that you would join us for this dialogue. And also feel free to message Ed and I because we would love to point you in the direction to really make an impact on this topic. So going back to the wealth gap, when we look at the opportunity of expanding the pie and including more. I know you were deeply involved in the Vernon Manor investment, correct? Which was a minority investment group that went into and purchased that property and was a part. And that was also in the midst of another group that really looked at this as an intentional effort. You were very intentional um, to do that. Can you share with us a little bit about that intentionality on that project and maybe what has become of it since? Yes, yes. So there's a woman, Laura Brunner, who first had the idea of inviting African-American participation. Uh, a lot of people in Cincinnati know Laura and how strong she is. And she approached me to see if I could put a group together that would own the project. Mm -hmm. And I was more than happy to do that. And we were successful on that first project, and we did another project. And now we're on our fourth project with Al Nair 
company where uh, Laura used to work and uh, Molly North leads that company. It's been exactly the kind of project that I wanted to get involved with to show it can be done, to show that we have the wherewithal within the community among minority groups and women to participate. You know, there's a recent study that said if women were participating at their population percentage in this country, in, you know, capitalism, the GDP could be expanded by 30%. So just think we can bring minorities and women being more represented in some of these projects like commercial real estate developments. The same thing happened with the ownership of the Reds. Mm. We have a minority group that I led along with Ross Love. And that we, we have, I think, the first in the country minority-owned MLB team, mm-hmm. you know, with a substantial portion of the ownership wow. being represented by minorities. Mm-hmm. We're also doing that with Legacy. So Legacy Acquisition Corp. is a special purpose acquisition company. We have $300 million in trust and are seeking to acquire a business We are on the New York Stock Exchange, LGC, our ticker. And in a few months, we hope to acquire a billion-dollar company that will be a publicly traded company on Wall Street, not done by minorities. Hmm. This is something that we're using it as a demonstration of what can be done and how you can have a vision and fulfill it. Mm -hmm. Are there individuals, Ed, that are younger generations that you've kind of trying to plan ahead? How do we get individuals that can make this happen in perpetuity? Have you brought in younger investors than what we would typically find in such a large ownership group? Absolutely. We have investors who are millennials. We have in... Legacy, for example, we have 70% are minority Mm. investors in Legacy. There are young people out there who have the wherewithal and have the intellectual capabilities, everything they need to be successful. They just need to be given an opportunity, a little open door, a little push Mm -hmm. to dive in and take advantage of the new kind of capitalism that I want to see us have, which is more inclusive. You know, and I often refer to the phenomenon in Atlanta, where Atlanta exploded after it became more open to diversity in their investments. When they brought in Herman Russell to help build the airport, mm-hmm. that was a major step forward. Uh, Herman's an African-American. You know, no African-American had ever had such a large project and a big piece of it. But look at Atlanta today. It's exploded. And, you know, Cincinnati has that capability. We've got all the ingredients right here, Mike. We can explode also. Mm -hmm. And so it's not a matter of, you know, Robin Hood. It's not stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. It's participation Mm -hmm. that counts. Hmm. 
you know, where you can have some asset ownership among groups that are normally not invited to the party. That's a great challenge to all of us to, you know, I, I, again, having leaned into this particular dialogue for many years, I tend to actually take that extra pause and look at a group that's being built or groups that's together and say, are there individuals in the room that should be here that aren't here? Right. And let's think about how we can get them in the pipeline for conversation, whether it's organizationally or the board. We tend to do at a lot of research on organizations. We call it the talent magnet audit where we start at the board level, but we go as far down as we can reach to those that are closest to the customer as it relates to product development or services provided and take a conversation and find so many times that many of the innovations that are happening inside of organizations are not coming from the C-suite. They're coming from the managers, the supervisors, and those frontline teams that are out serving. And we all in the C-suite need to be quiet and let others talk and give them the opportunity to step up and engage. And what better way I was several years ago, I had a client that was able to send two employees abroad and they sent a brand manager and they sent a basically a first line project lead. And I remember being around that project lead after he came back and how empowered he was, that you could easily forget his job title and assume that this gentleman's running manufacturing, right? Because he came back so empowered to be able to take an international assignment and to be honored by that and to be at, quote unquote, his level at that time. And the inspiration that came back on that project was just phenomenal. That's also the same company that would say that their best innovations didn't come from their executive team. It came from the people who were out actually running the lines, producing the product, listening to customer feedback, and those that actually are out in the community and hearing what people are saying about the product. So they were like real-time doing R&D and already in and of themselves providing great information for an organization. And all the company had to do was unlock that and change where we go and change who we pay attention to, to be more inclusive in their attitudes and perspectives across the workforce. Uh, So that's just another example of where we can be much more intentional to help close the wealth gap. You have to give people opportunity. And if we can give more people opportunity, the closer we can get of closing that gap, right? You are so right. The, you know, in my uh, company, Innova Premier, which is an automotive pre-assembly operation, we actually work real hard to invert our organization structure. Hmm. So our chart's upside down. Hmm. And the reason is it's the folks on the plant floor who are delivering the goods. Hmm. They're creating the product that's the heart of our business. Mm. It's not, like you say, the C-suite. It's not the executive level uh, that is producing the goods. Mm -hmm. Mm. I was in a discussion recently with a dear friend, Vanessa White. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about this dialogue of including younger people earlier than we naturally think is what we're supposed to do. 
right? And I've really rested on that thought. In fact, I've got a call out. So we have a great board um, here at Centennial and I've really been thinking about, but we have no one younger on the board. They're all elder statesmen that have been incredibly successful and have done amazing things and bring great thoughts. But also our board has pushed back on that the last couple meetings of, you know, this is great, but I wonder what everyone else is thinking because we're, you know, a couple are in retired state and have, and Vanessa really said something so profound of being intentional of engaging younger talent earlier. Why do we have a hierarchy of well, I can't give my opinion there until I'm, you know, 22 years into my career. And again, we talk about that, but it's when you have these little conversations that make you go, you know, that was really profound. And I need to think about what am I doing today to engage other people and with investment groups and with, I love the fact of how intentional you've been to have the majority being the minority and the impact and the really the confidence that, I mean, you're giving so many people confidence that it can be done. And then you give people hope that we can have a greater, and the world is already changing. Back to a point we talked about earlier, we can be the change, but we have to take the steps forward to do so. So thank you for doing that. Oh, it's what keeps me going, Mike. You know, there are a couple of books I'm into that I think help to characterize the landscape that we're talking about, particularly with regard to inclusive capitalism. One of them uh, is called Winners Take All. It's the elite charade of changing the world by Anand Gurry Haradats. It's a G. H-I-R-I-D-H-A-R-A-D-A-S. Very hard to pronounce. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll provide this in our show notes. Yes. <laughs> and so that one challenges us to look at ourselves with more critically in terms of greed versus love, mm -hmm. that spectrum. Mm -hmm. You know, we're only going to move that gap, that whole shape of that curve, it's going to take years to do, but we're only going to do it if we're working together and bringing more and more people into the, the investment world. Mm -hmm. uh, so they own something. The other one is a book called The New Jim Crow by uh, Michelle Alexander. And it shows how minorities in particular, Af African-Americans in particular, are still in a Jim Crow world as a result of mass incarceration. Mm. And mass incarceration has replaced Jim Crow in terms of keeping a large percentage of a population in tow. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's a, so there's another one uh, that I haven't gotten into yet, but I hear is good, and it's called The End of Loyalty by uh, Rick Wartzman, and I'm anxious to get a hold of that one. But its subtitle is The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Mm. So, you know, we've got to work the full spectrum of socioeconomic status mm -hmm. has to be included. Mm -hmm. 
And so it's not just a wealth gap, it's the income gap. In particular, poverty, which is so critical in our region, you know, we have unusually high level of child poverty. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there are studies that say if you just let that go on its own, it doesn't break for eight generations. Hmm. takes eight generations to break it in a family. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't let that happen Mm -hmm. to people. They not only aren't climbing the ladder, they don't have a ladder. They can't get on the first rung. Mm. So, uh, you know, we've got to shift the whole notion of how capitalism is applied at every level in the socioeconomic strata. Mm-hmm. And there are different remedies we have to try. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to put full energy and full resources behind those. You know, the, one of the poverty challenges is transportation for those who have a job. So in Cincinnati, you know, you might wind up not being able to get to work Mm -hmm. because the bus line doesn't work for you or you can't get your child a child care. And, you know, so one of the thoughts I had was we could do something like a Uber Cares where we get investments, charitable donations into this pool. We have preloaded cards for the people who we've targeted mm-hmm. who, who need this mm-hmm. and it's funded by charity mm-hmm. so they can use a uber swipe their card and you know maybe they only need that for six months right until they get on their feet mm-hmm. and they get a car mm. is that something that's being worked on i'm initiating the effort on that with the chamber with okay. the cincinnati chamber yeah But I've talked to a few donors. They think it's a great idea. We're going to talk to Uber. We've got a connection there through the chamber. And, you know, if Uber doesn't do it, maybe Lyft will. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or both. Or both. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. And more. That's really powerful. Yeah, there's so many topics as we look at inclusive capitalism that the other thing for those listening, a place to start is back to – you know, loving your people well, right? And thinking about not what challenges you have had or are having, but what are our people having and how can we help them, right? Intentionally help them, not look at, well, they're unreliable and we should fire this person, but maybe, you know, and oh, by the way, and that's happened for the last 30 people we've hired. Maybe what you can do is actually identify how can I be a solution as an employer, to help my employees and help my community instead of going through perpetual cycles of turnover, I can learn about the people that I'm employing a little more and realize, wow, there really is a transportation problem in our community. Maybe we could buy a van. Buying a van would be a whole lot less expensive than managing turnover. I can attest to that being in the business that we're in. And just the impact of turnover on an organization, what it does to your culture, what it does to your environment, and being able to think outside the box around childcare. We've had the opportunity to talk a lot about childcare on this podcast, actually. One with Vanessa Freitag. We had Vanessa come in and talk about the impact and implications of childcare and expenses to a family in episode 42. 
And then recently with Amanda Greenwell discussing early childhood education and the just when schools let out at two o'clock and child care costs $1,600 a month for a family, that's not sustainable for employees and no wonder they have to leave early. You know, so how can we be more flexible as an employer to care about the people that we're serving? I was listening last year to a speaker, Alan Bolio, and he was talking about someone asked him, what's the most innovative thing you've seen that's had an economic impact? Really big question that an employer did. And Alan's feedback was, well, I had a company that recognized that hiring individuals who have never been able to keep a full-time job might not be their problem directly. It might be because they've grown up in a family who has never been able to keep full-time jobs. This company started recognizing that, you know what, why don't we equip our people to learn what it's like to work a full-time job? So they started out employing people working for three to four hours a day, two to three days a week. And then they got those individuals to show up more consistently because, again, a generation of – to some listening to this, you may think, that's crazy. I've always worked 80 hours a week or 60 hours a week. Not every culture does. Not every community does. So this company worked two to three days a week, three to four hours a week with employees. And then they actually showed the employees, look what could happen if we helped you work five hours a day, two to three days a week. And they slowly over time equipped these individuals to learn what it's like to work 30 to 40 hours and the financial opportunity that they could have if they did that. Again, to some listeners, you may think, well, how could people not know that? The reality is not everyone knows that because they've grown up in cycles of poverty and cycles of perpetual employment situations. And he said that was one of the most innovative things as a national economist, a global economist that I've seen is seeing an organization figure out that the symptoms that they were letting people go for was not the root cause. And when they started doing this, and oh, by the way, when they did this, their pipeline, unlike most of their competitors, became robust with talent. Because people knew this is the place to go to actually learn how to manage my life working full time. And what an inclusive focus to kind of get outside their own minds and put themselves in another person's shoes and help them become a better employer and really invest in the people that they employ. That is such a great example. It's, I mean, social responsibility is the key difference for corporations between exclusive capitalism and inclusive capitalism. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've got a uh, pioneer in that regard in our community. We've got more than one, but we've got one in particular, and I call him Saint, but Dan Meyer. Mm -hmm. Saint Dan Meyer at Nehemiah shows you how to do it and how to care for the people who are, in his case, mostly felons. Mm -hmm who he's given an opportunity to. And by the way, he bought a van mm -hmm. and he picks them up and gets them, you know, to work. And you would not believe how enthusiastic and faithful mm. these employees are. You know, they've got broad smiles on their face. No one's given them an opportunity in the past. And 
they're going to show what they can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dan's work with Nehemiah and Beacon of Hope, we're excited to have him on the panel with us in May with the Garing Center. And we have actually seen organizations take that model that Dan is leading at Nehemiah and bring that into their place and have found the same success, right? Surprise, surprise, you know. The other is Dave Hershey, Dave who's Hershey. also on the panel with us, and Dave Phillips, founder of Cincinnati Works, Peggy Zink at Cincinnati Works. The work they do of putting coaches and basically social workers inside of organizations to help deal with life as your employees know it, not maybe not life as you know it. The other thing that I've shared with them is I've heard by many organizations who have implemented this social worker employment coach into their work environment, they're surprised how many quote-unquote executives are also using it, right? Because the reality is, as people, our lives are messy and we all have needs and we all need help. And when you create a culture where you show your employees it's okay to bring your messy life here. I'd like to help you and instill a difference in your life. And I'd like to be an employer who shows care for you and by doing so gets the best that you can bring to our workplace, right? What a profound concept of creating impact. So we're really excited to have both Dan and Dave on our panel. Ed, I'm very excited to moderate this panel of powerhouse leaders in our community. Thank you for accepting the invitation to join us today and also to carry the torch here for inclusive capitalism in this community. Oh, Mike, it's my pleasure. This has been a wonderful discussion. We got to keep it going. We look forward to that. Those listening, please send your thoughts and perspectives. Uh, Please rate and leave a review of today's conversation. Also, feel free to use hashtag Talent Magnet, and Ed and I would be happy to respond to questions you might have, thoughts you might have, and we hope this has inspired you to think differently and to take action today and tomorrow on those that are around your community and those that you employ. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. By now, you've probably heard of servant leadership, but did you know it's been proven to improve company culture, customer service, and reduce turnover on teams? Find out if your actions pass the servant leadership test at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash SL. That's talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com slash SL. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, Produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. 
Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.